said on WHUPLP, Hillsborough. Being Reasonable comes to you from the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsborough, North Carolina. Please fasten your seatbelts. I'm Mark Solomon, and you are taking part in Being Reasonable, the weekly conversation show that focuses on how we've arrived on our steadfast views and our desire to know what is true. To participate in this friendly collaboration, all you need is respectfulness and an honest interest in the truth. We can all improve the way we form and consider our beliefs, and we can do so by being reasonable. One, two. On this week's show, we first speak with Ed Teriakin from Dying Right NC. He is here to discuss his belief that end-of-life issues and the medicalization of the dying process are some of today's more pressing concerns. During the second half of the show, we speak with the Reverend Robert Fruith from St. Matthew's Episcopal Church in Hillsborough, North Carolina, as he discusses his belief in the Christian faith. But first up, Edmund Teriakin from Dying Right NC. Edmund Teriakin, nice to meet you. Mark, thank you very much. Nice to meet you. Tell me a strong belief that you have. I have come to believe very strongly that people should have the right to control their end of life, to determine how they want to die, because we're all going to face that mortality, that inevitable mortality. More likely than not, we will have a prolonged dying experience. It's not like 100 years ago when people contracted a virus or a disease and they were dead within 24 hours. Um, when you get to a certain age, you're unlikely to die in war or through an accident where you die suddenly. Most people will die a protracted end, and they should have the right to decide how they're going to die under those situations. Before we go a little bit further, uh, I wanted to know if you could a- answer two questions for me. The first question is, on a scale from one to seven— how confident are you in that this belief is correct or true? Not to be facetious, but eight. Okay. Absolutely. I think this Very is a, this is a absolute right that everyone should have. I cannot see a compelling argument why someone else should be able to dictate to you, if you're mentally competent, you're not being coerced, how you should die. And on a scale from one to seven, the second question, how important is it to you in believing in things that are true? Oh, it's absolutely, absolutely true. And I... So a seven. It's a seven. And I tend to make my, form my beliefs based on either data Mm -hmm. or empirical studies or um, examples where I see the truth of what I believe to come true. So how did you come about this belief? I heard a story that shocked me so much. It was on television. It was an interview with Anderson Cooper uh, several years ago. It was a story of a woman in Pennsylvania, who was taking care of her um, dying father, a 93-year-old World War II veteran. Mm -hmm. And the father had made clear to the daughter that he wanted to die at home. He did not want to die in hospital. And he had given his daughter a health care power of attorney and had signed an advance directive to make clear he would be able to die at home. That was his wish. And he had also signed DNR, do not resuscitate order. Um, 
The daughter was taking care of the father one morning when the father said to the daughter, Barbara, please pass me a vial of morphine, the vial of morphine that's there, my painkiller, which she did. And suddenly he chugged it in front of her. And she wasn't aware of how much morphine was in the vial. And um, shortly thereafter, the hospice home care nurse arrived for the daily visit. And Barbara told the hospice home care nurse, I think my father may die now because he's taken a vial of, of morphine and I don't know how much was in it. And the hospice home care nurse said, well, we're going to have to rush him to the hospital. Mm. And she said, no, no, no. He doesn't want to go to hospital. He, he, want, he made it clear he wants to die at home. Mm-hmm. Hospice home care nurse then called up its headquarters. And the headquarters said, you have to take him to a hospital to have his stomach pumped. Mm. And she, Barbara, remonstrated. And they called a sheriff. The sheriff came, mm. arrested her in mm. front of her father. The ambulance came, rushed him to the hospital where they pumped his stomach. And um, he died four days later in hospital against all his wishes of a pneumonia that he contracted in the hospital. Barbara was prosecuted for violating Pennsylvania's assisted suicide prohibition. I heard that story and I was sickened to my stomach at so many levels. I thought, this poor man, he made clear his wishes at end of life. Mm -hmm. They were violated in every which way. On top of that, he saw his daughter arrested in front of him, handcuffed and taken away. Right. And I thought, this, is, this violates everything that America should stand for. And then I started investigating how often and how possible is that, that someone would be arrested for helping somebody at end of life. Right. It happens quite frequently, Mark, and it just disgusted me that at end of life, people can be punished for helping a loved one achieve what they want. So I've embarked on, a, on, a, on an effort to make sure that that can't happen in North Carolina by getting a law passed in North Carolina that would make it absolutely permissible to help somebody at end of life. When someone is towards the end of their lives, why should we be concerned of uh, by helping them die? Well, I don't think we want to help them die. We just don't want to interfere with whatever their wish is. That's the point, is that their wish should be honored. It's not. It should not be our ability to intervene mm-hmm. and prevent them from achieving their wish but we should be able to facilitate what they would like at end of life. And let me give you an example. Very often in states where medical aid and dying, by which a physician writes a prescription for a lethal dose of medicine that's very fast acting, in some states where that is not allowed, people at end of life who are suffering greatly, where pain medication no longer works, where they've given up hope because they they have accepted the finality of the terminal disease, Sometimes they're forced to take measures in their own hands by using a gun to blow their brains out, jumping off a bridge, jumping in front of a truck. It happens much more frequently than people are aware of. Mm -hmm. And it's a terribly sad and a horrible way to end one's life when one feels forced to do that. I've been working on this, um, this effort for several years. And in the course of talking to people, I've heard more than half a dozen stories like that. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that is your reasoning behind this is the motivation is it and I I'm trying to understand is it more of a self-determination issue is it more of a suffering issue is it more of kind of a rugged independence issue I'm just trying to understand where your primary motivation lies and where the primary Mark I think I think all three of the things you just cited I mean certainly um uh, an individual should have the right to control their own destiny. 
I think that at the end of life, there's often unnecessary protracted suffering that does no one any good, that the person suffering doesn't enjoy, doesn't want, and the caretaker, the family member that has to witness the person suffering doesn't enjoy and doesn't want to see that. And it seems to me that ultimately um, there's a libertarian streak that we should all respect where an individual should have control of their life to the extent that it doesn't interfere with someone else's life. And at end of life, when you are faced with the inevitability of a terminal disease, remember, Mark, we're talking mm-hmm. by and large for someone who's entered a terminal phase of a disease where medical science says you have less than six months to live. That's when this law is applicable. Right. Should someone be able to end their lives, do you think, regardless of an illness, is, or is this something that's illness-dependent? Well, um, let, let's review very quickly, if we may, the law on suicide in America and in the United Kingdom, whose laws we inherited through the common law. It used to be illegal to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. And as funny as that sounds— it actually was, in a way, enforceable because what would happen is the suicide can't be arrested, of course, but the suicide's heirs could be punished, and they were. Often the estate of the suicide would pass to the state or to the king in England under the notion that your life did not belong to you, it belonged to the king. And so in America, throughout the 19th century, very often the um, heirs of the of the suicide would have no no money left. The bank account would escheat to the state. The property was escheat to the state. And it wasn't until 1973 that the last state in America got rid of the crime of suicide. That was North Carolina, in fact. It was 1973. The legislature said the crime of suicide is ab- that crime is abolished. Um, so, aside from legally, uh, is there a moral reason why we should or should not? allow someone to in their own lives in any situation. Right. I, I think that there's probably a moral reason why we should try to discourage and prevent suicides that are irrational. And I think I'd like to make a distinction between somebody that takes medicine at the end of life when they're facing a terminal illness and they've thought about the alternatives. That seems to me a, a rational decision that's really not tantamount to suicide. And somebody who may be on the spur of the moment impulsively based on a very ephemeral disappointment or uh, a financial difficulty that could be transitory has decides to impulsively end their life. I think that intervention there is worthwhile because I think that there is um, a terrible loss when somebody who could lead a productive life chooses to end it unnecessarily. Somebody that's terminal, I think, by contrast, realizes that it's an inevitable thing that's about to happen, that is happening. The suffering will not alleviate. Death will come sooner or later, and that person says, I don't want to continue the suffering. I think that's quite different. What I'm trying to understand is that one of your arguments is this independence and this libertarian uh, view, and I'm, I'm, I'm picturing somebody who's 70, reasonably good health, not too many medical problems more than other people, and they said, yeah, I've he said, yeah, I've, I've lived a good life. It's been nice. And, you know, I'm 70. Next 10 years, I, you know, I can see the handwriting on the wall. Things are going to go downhill, you know, and I would rather not experience that. I'd rather just go out, um, uh, I'd rather burn out than a fade, way, fade away kind of thing. And and could we be supportive of that from, from a libertarian standpoint? Or is that something that we, that, that does not cover? 
I think from a libertarian point of view, you do respect an individual's choice. Um, I think that from a moral perspective, you might try to persuade the person that there are reasons to continue living. Okay. But from a libertarian point of view, I, I tend to respect autonomy and one an adult's right to choose. And I think maybe what one thing you're saying is that there's more to being alive than brain functioning and your heart beating. Is that a- Absolutely. I mean, I think that there, there tends to be a prejudice uh, in the medical community that quantity of life is much more important than quality of life. And I think by and large, most people feel quality of life is at least as important. And that they, they would rather have quality time and quality uh, uh, a life with autonomy, with the ability to speak, to express oneself, to think, to move, than to be hooked up to a machine, uh, to be in a semi-comatose state. Is, is that the type of life that anybody would want on their best friend, on themselves? No, absolutely not. Nobody would want that. And yet um, the medicalization of end of life dictates that very often that is the end of life of somebody mm-hmm. hooked up to a machine uh, functionally dead, but biologically, the organs are kept going through uh, machinery. That, to me, is uh, a desecration of human dignity in every way. What if someone says, uh, someone comes up to you and says the argument, um, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I, I, I get about the uh, about controlling your own destiny and suffering and so uh, I have a relative who is dying. Why can't I just have hospice come in and and have the removal of uh, food and, and removal of liquids and just let it happen, occur naturally? What, what's, what is the harm of doing that? No harm, if that's what the person wants. I mean, ultimately, it's the individual himself, the, 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 the suffering person, the dying person that should be able to dictate. Now, if the dying person is no longer able to communicate his wishes— then in our society, uh, typically a healthcare proxy, a healthcare power of attorney makes those types of decisions in the absence of a decision-making or at least able to vocalize that decision by the individual himself. I guess what I'm asking, is there, is there a distinction we can make between active and passive euth- euthanasia? Well, um, first of all, um, just to be perfectly clear, euthanasia is when a third party um, applies... Um, a lethal dose to an individual. Uh, euthanasia is illegal in every state in America, even in the states where medical aid and dying is available. So if a doctor applies the medicine in any of the 10 states where medical aid and dying is legal, the right. doctor will be pros- could be prosecuted for murder. So the Mor- diff- Morally, is there... A, I, know, I understand legally, but morally, should there be a difference? Between- I don't think morally there should be a difference. And I should, I should add very quickly this... Um, it's only in America, by the way, that we make this very bright distinction between euthanasia and self-administration of the medicine. In Canada and in Mexico, our neighbors to the north and south, and in Europe, in the countries where it's legal, where it is legal, euthanasia is an option. The individual can say to the doctor, "I want you to provide the medicine to uh, provide the, the injection of the medicine or to administer it." And in those countries, oddly enough. Three quarters of patients who apply for medical aid and dine ask the doctor to administer it because they trust the doctor there. They have, a, 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 I think, a special relationship with their doctor, unlike what we have in America, where there's a great mistrust and a great anonymity of the medical practice at end of life where you are often surrounded by 
a nurse practitioner, an oncologist, all sorts of specialists, the hospitalist, the anesthesiologist, you don't know who your doctor is. And so in America, we insist that the person self-administer. In other countries, the, per, the, the, the individual has the choice to self-administer, take the medicine himself, or ask the doctor to do it. What if someone has the argument that, well, um, by self-administration, it really makes it very clear that the person, him or herself, really wants to do it. And if someone else does it, that it makes it less clear that that is the person's personal choice. I think that's a valid argument. And that is why in America, by the way, we don't have any state or any effort to broaden medical aid and dine to euthanasia, to allow a doctor to administer it. We've had medical aid and dine in America since um, 1997. Oregon was the first state. We now have 10 states that have uh, adopted it. And we've had 25 other states, including North Carolina, that have proposed the legislation. No one has proposed, suggested, or asked that it be expanded to euthanasia to allow a, a doctor to administer the medicine. Nobody's asking for that in America mm -hmm. because they do feel, as you just pointed out, that an additional safeguard would be to require the individual to self-administer it. So you know it is the will and the desire of that person himself to take it. And you, there can be no confusion that the doctor is against the person's wishes administering it. But if we agree that there's not a moral distinction between the doctor doing it and the person himself doing it, I'm, I can see a situation where uh, a person person's mind is intact, but maybe physically they're so inca incapacitated that they aren't able to work whatever system is available to them. Should we, uh, in those cases, um, I'm not saying legally, but morally be able to help that person? I agree, we should. Um, you, and you do raise uh, an example that has troubled many of us that are working in this area, that if we require self-administration, uh, a quadriplegic, for example, might be unable to self-administer. There are ways um, of permitting, of, of, of rigging up a system where even a, uh, a quadriplegic could self-administer by, for example, um, an intravenous um, attachment where an eye movement might trigger the solution to pass into the veins. So there are ways that we could accommodate even a quadriplegic and still require it be self-administration. But of course, we are uh, we are sort of quibbling about uh, slight semantics, and we we lose the fact that uh, if we had a better relationship, I think, with doctors in America, I think we'd be more comfortable with the European and the Canadian model, which is very very popular with um, terminally ill people in those countries. Is there a situation that you could envision where? you would not be supportive of this. Is this, um, is this an, an either-or arg argument for you? Or can you uh, think of scenarios where this, you'd step back from this and, and reconsider another view? Sure. I, I, yes, I, I think that I, if I saw data that showed me that there was massive abuse of this, that... Um, Patients were systematically being coerced despite the safeguards, or that uh, doctors were promiscuously writing prescriptions for non-terminal people, um, or somebody who is just uh, temporarily um, uh, disappointed 
in a, uh, uh, a psychological way is given given a prescription. If if I saw that there was rampant abuse, I would back off on this. But one of the things I've done is systematically pour over the data that is readily available online for anybody who has questions about this from all the states that participate. There is very, very granular data. Who's taking the medicine? Who's getting prescriptions filled? How many doctors are writing them? And there's been no instance of abuse. There's been no instance of coercion. There's been no instance of any family member reporting that um, their the relative that took it was not terminal. Mm-hmm. The data support the way this the, the laws is working in America is the way it was supposed to work. And it's defied all of the ominous predictions of the opponents. In your experience, when people fear death, what is it that they're fearing? I suppose it's a combination of things. The, if if uh, anybody has over, ever heard the fire and, uh, fire and brimstone speech about how horrible hell could be, um, who knows if, if uh, you're, you're going to head to that place. Uh, you never know for sure. Um, perhaps it's also the, the sense of that horrible unknown. Maybe it's a sense that um, we have a, a, a vision of our importance and the thought that we suddenly are going to be gone and eventually not remembered. I suppose that's very frightening and scary. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that... The sense that the, the party is going on and I'm not part of the and party. And you're not part of it. Yeah. And I, I think that uh, the older we get, the more we realize the world is going to go on just fine without us, any of us. We, yeah. we like to think that we're, you know, I think when we're young, everybody thinks they're kind of immortal, um, invincible. And then as you get older, you get frailer. You realize, no, not, not really. And then you realize, I'm going to go and the world's going to be just fine without me. And that's not a nice thought, is it? Is one of the things that people fear, and maybe it's a conflation of fearing death with fearing the suffering in death or the lingering in death? conflating those two? Is that? I think that's a good point, by the way. So I often talk to people about this topic, and I often hear people say, you know, I'm not scared of dying. I'm scared of suffering. I'm not scared of dying. I'm scared of losing my mind, becoming incontinent, losing my dignity. Those are the things that scare me. And I think that it's it's probably a good thing that eventually we get to a place where we've accepted the inevitability of death. I think you should... You should, you should come to grips with that, whether you believe you're going to meet your maker or you're not going to, there is no maker to meet. You should be there. But it's hard to say, I, I accept that I might start becoming incontinent. I am comfortable that I might start babbling and becoming incoherent and forgetting what house I live in. I don't think anybody would ever be comfortable with that as a thought. In our culture, there are probably more people who are religious than not religious. If their minds aren't going to be changed, are we talking about some bigger issues here? I think, I mean, of course we are talking about a very, very big issue, which is one's religious beliefs. Because again, that is by and large the strongest opposing force to medical aid and dying is from the most religious people um, that at least I have found. And uh, that's very relevant to America uh, in 2019 because, as an example, approximately half of the hospitals in America are now either run or under the aegis of the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church does not sanction medical aid and dying. Mm -hmm. 
And these church-run hospitals will not allow any physicians associated with them to to perform medical aid in dying. Mm -hmm. So even if you were to pass legislation to allow it in every state, it doesn't mean it would be available. It still would be very hard to access it. And that is the case, for example, I can give you the case in California, um, a state of 40 million people, but less than 1,000 a year have access to medical aid in dying because there's so few physicians that can participate. So the religious... Um, the religious aura around this issue is very important. It's very relevant. Is there a strong motivation to reach out to different religious sects and different religious organizations? Yes, I. Uh, we reach out to the faith community as much as we can. We're always trying to engage with the faith community. I've had really energizing discussions with them, but it's a it's a, such a deeply held belief that I don't think that they will ever be persuaded, and they'll never persuade me or anyone who's for medical aid in dying. Now, there are other, I would say, religious um, sect or denominations that are much more comfortable with it. I would say some of the more mainstream uh, denominations find this absolutely appropriate. For example, um, when I talk to evangelicals, I, I, there's always this paradox that I can't quite understand, which is that it's inappropriate to interfere with God's design and will by facilitating an end to life. But it's, why is it appropriate to extend life? Why is it appropriate to perform CPR when a person's heart stops beating? Why is it appropriate to, for example, do a heart transplant or a liver transplant when the person seems to be about to die, but for human intervention? Are we not interfering then with God's plan for somebody? So I, I do have a difficulty understanding the logic of saying that um, God's will must be respected, but only in one sense. Why do you think this is so hard for us to just to have these have routine conversations about? Mark, one of the lingering taboos in America is death. If you want to make sure that you alienate all your friends, talk about death. If you want never to be invited for Thanksgiving dinner, talk about death and ask your father or your grandfather. How do you want to die? Do you want to be buried? Uh, what do you want to do? We do not like to talk about death. And it is something that recoils us. We know it's inevitable. Mm -hmm. We hide it from our children. Uh, we don't talk about it in polite society. Might not plan for it. Uh, and we often don't plan for it. You know, a lot of people don't have wills. A lot of people don't know, uh, have never expressed how they want to be buried or where they want to be buried. So it's a taboo subject. It makes people uncomfortable. And uh, until we rectify that, I think we're never going to be comfortable talking about something like this. You are listening to Being Reasonable on WHUP. The Reverend Robert Fruwith from St. Matthew's Episcopal Church in Hillsborough, North Carolina, is coming up after this short break. Unread, more or less overfed, 
but always on alert. I can make a good cheese spread, plant a raised rose bed, want to make your heart fly. I can clean a small rug stain, draw a cool jet plane, and cause you to cry. I am just like Superman, and my power is to make Like an airplane, I'm always on the go. My costume, my costume is bulletproof. I'm strong enough to leave a bruise, and I know how to sew. I dress in in a red poncho while wearing red boots that glow. I streak across the sky. I'd make a make a good hero if I wasn't such a zero and cause you to cry. I am just like Superman, and my power is to make. happen to have a strong belief you wish to discuss. It's interesting you ask for a strong belief because I have a belief in it's my Christian faith, mm -hmm. but it's less of a, when you say it's a strong belief, I draw back. Okay. And Why I, would you say that? Why do you say that you draw back? I draw back because... I feel that my Christian belief, my Christian faith, is something that I choose to engage as a way of seeing the world, rather than something I'm simply confirmed in already. 
Tell me more. I'm trying to understand the distinction. Yeah. So when you say strong belief, it makes me think of like a monolithic certainty that okay. I actually know is absolutely true. I see. And when I say my faith is not that way, I mean that it's sort of a hypothesis through which I choose to see the world. Uh, on a scale from one to seven, how confident are you in that your belief is true related to what you're saying? I think the confidence would rest around five or six. Okay. Because it's not like a monolithic belief that, I, that I'm absolutely certain in and will never change. But as I've chosen to see the world through the lens of this belief, mm -hmm. I receive confirmation that it is profoundly life-giving. Okay. So there we are. So I would say round of five, something like that. Okay. Well, let me ask you this question. On a scale from one to seven, how important is it to you in believing in things that are true? I would say it's a seven. I'm a complicated guest because I feel that it's utterly critical to know what you're believing as you experience the world. How did you come about this belief? How did I come about this belief? So again, we're talking about my Christian faith. Um, and, and by faith, what do we mean? I would say that my faith is, is my belief that Jesus uniquely reveals who God is to us. Okay. And I came to that uh, through an experience of childhood suffering and also a childhood sense of the sacredness of, of creation. And those two things came together for me in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So that although I didn't have a religious upbringing, when push came to shove when I was in college and things were very difficult, I had a kind of a conversion experience around the person of Jesus of Nazareth as the one on whom I found my personal truth, the sense of both the suffering that I knew as part of human life, mm -hmm. in my own life, in my family's life, but also the sacredness of things. And most peculiarly, I think how that sacredness and that suffering can be woven together. What would you say your definition of faith is? So make sure we're talking about the same thing. My definition of faith would be a belief that I choose as the lens through which I experience my life. I assume that Jesus reveals God to us in, a, say, an unsurpassable way. Mm -hmm. So then I'm going to see my relationships with people and the world around me. It's my experience is interpreted by that belief, by that belief in him. Okay. So that people are fundamentally valuable, that compassion is fundamentally uh, of God, that love and truth are what we were made for. So it establishes the values by which I interpret my experience of the world around me. Faith, you're telling me, is a lens from which you choose to see the world. Is that correct? Through which yeah. I choose to see the world. If someone is sitting next to you and let's say they're Muslim and they have chosen their own faith to see the world through their, uh, through their lens, mm. how, how do we make the distinction between 
which lens we should use. Right, because each lens is going to say different things about what human beings are yeah, and what we're for or what right. creation is yeah. and what it's for or if it's for anything at all. Right. Um, so when you have a different lens, you see and interpret the world in a different way. Right, sure. And the question does come down to, are all lenses relative? Are there some lenses that are that cause you to see the world in profoundly destructive ways? We definitely don't have to get to like judging between the lenses no. at this point. Okay. I, I do want to judge. I do want to say there is some judgment about some faiths because some faiths are destructive. Right. Say if you believe in a UFO cult that wants you to commit violence, that would be a destructive way of seeing the world, right? Mm -hmm. But with when I'm doing or engage with like interfaith dialogue with my friend Bob, who is right. sitting next to me and right. his Muslim faith. I think it's super exciting to be able to ask him, how does he see the world? How does he see human beings? Yeah. How does he see the purpose of politics and, and religion in society, where he gets his values from and how that's tied back to his belief in Muhammad uh, as the prophet? Right. Uh, so we, we end up seeing the world in slightly different ways, which is exciting to find out. Yeah, and yeah. we may discover that there are commonalities of purpose that we can engage in together around, say, care for the, the poor or extending compassion to those who need compassion. You have a strong belief in Jesus Christ and someone from Muslim faith will have a strong belief in Allah. And I'm trying to think how we would be able to, presumably getting at the truth, which is important to most people and is important to you, mm. How would we go about figuring that out? The actual truth. Truth, in, yeah. In, I, so at some point in these dialogues, there is always uh, a separation out into difference. And so that fundamentally, um, the Buddhist and I don't end up perhaps at the same place, maybe a different place and how we see the world or how we see the importance of language or politics or society. And at the same time, great commonalities emerge around what makes us fundamentally human or what's fundamentally important for humans. For instance, compassion arises across them. So we may not come to a, a similar truth about the particular content of our belief, Jesus or Allah or Buddha, but we can come to, oddly, a similar vision about what is important for human beings in living. If being compassionate to others, if it's not uniquely from Christianity or uniquely from the Muslim faith, what can we attribute it to? And this is where my faith as a lens begins to interpret this reality. As a Christian, I would say that it's God and God's grace involved in every human life that is rising up through these different human experiences to elicit a sense of compassion and the goodness of compassion. Even, for, even though the Buddhist doesn't believe in my vision of a monotheistic God, creator, uh, I would still recognize that in my Buddhist friends, I find a tremendous amount of God's grace already there. 
But does the lens you're saying you choose to see the world, does that relate to the reality of the world? Can we agree that the lens that you have could, in some circumstances, not relate to whether something is actually true or not, right? Yeah, that's right. And I would, and I would push back ever so gently and say that we're always interpreting the world. Mm-hmm. And so we're always seeing it through a particular lens if it's just our family background. Mm-hmm. And so it's better to be conscious of the lens you're choosing than unconsciously thinking that how you're seeing the things is ultimately the necessary right way. That's my first response. And my second response is I'm continuing going on with being Christian because of the feedback I get from my engaging the world in a Christian way. It seems to be a life-giving positive way that, that does good things and seems to cause human flourishing. Because someone sitting next to you of uh, the Muslim faith would probably say a similar thing, I would imagine. Exactly. I'm trying to drill down to how we can make sure we're believing in something that is true. If there's someone sitting in this room and they believe that Elvis is a literal god, and they believe in Elvis. I'm just, thinking of, I'm just trying to think of an extreme example. Elvis really is this person's truth, and this truth guides them. Wouldn't there be a way that we could still test that belief? Or is that just something that's outside of testing? It's really a difficult question, uh, whether that's outside testing or not. If I had my friend here who is believing that, that uh, Elvis is God... Um, I could definitely engage with him in, in dialogue about what that means and how that has affected his life. Right. And if it has, from my perspective, if it has uh, allowed him to be a more creative, compassionate, uh, collaborative human being in touch with the people around him, having deep relationships, then I would think that was a productive belief. And, and there's some element that through Elvis and his image of Elvis, he was actually touching into truth with. But if it caused a a degrading in in the quality of his relationships and a degrading in the quality of his life, I could could say that, that something is not right in this. Should we believe in something that is not true, but is productive or makes a person feel good? Wow. Like, I have to almost instinctively say no, but I need to think about that for a moment. (laughs) Um, When I read a novel, I suspend my disbelief. When I watch Lord of the Rings, I suspend my disbelief, and I engage in it and may learn something about myself and the possibilities for my life by being in that movie as though it were true. So I think the arts almost always, if the fiction, fiction, not documentary, but fiction and and movies, are a way of experiencing a falsehood that leads us into truth. So in some sense, I'm answering yes to your question. 
I do that every time I go to the movies or whenever I read a book. Mm -hmm. I enter into a conceit which has, or a Shakespearean play, which has the power to reveal to me something fundamentally true about who I am, uh, even though it's false. It's not real. So is that a proper analogy in this sense? Because presumably the person who's watching the movie doesn't, they're suspending belief, but they know the movie is not real. It is not real. Right. And in another situation, like Elvis is God, they, they're not suspending disbelief. They believe Elvis is God, and Elvis gives them uh, hope. Then Elvis gives them uh, energy to get up in the morning and face the day. And Elvis really is working in their lives. They believe that Elvis is working in their lives. But should they believe in Elvis as God, even though people around them say, hey, uh, this is a little strange, and I know it's helping you? Part of my response to that person would not be to try to break their belief, mm -hmm. it would be to share where I'm coming from. If they could handle me saying, I don't believe that Elvis is God, but to respect where they are, because I think that would allow a further conversation. If there is something wrong in what they're believing, mm -hmm. then having further conversation around it may actually soften it and open them to something else. If... That person who believes in Elvis is God helps them be nice to other people and helps them be kind to their neighbors and you want to substitute something in that place. What would be maybe the second best reason we could say, be, not, be kind to your neighbors, uh, be nice to your spouse? What would be the second best reason do you think we could? For me personally, you're asking what I might put you or, in place. Yeah, sure. Well, we could tell them. Oh, so, for instance, because of my belief, my chosen belief in Jesus of Nazareth, I might say that, that all the kindness and goodness and compassion that you find uh, in Elvis and he inspires you to do your work and to, mm -hmm. and to love people around you, uh, I find uh, as, as part of this faith in Jesus of Nazareth, which actually gets to involve me in, in a community of two billion people around the world in a whole tradition and a, and a, and a rich tradition, which is an immensely nourishing. But if he didn't buy into that and he's saying, you're not buying into my Elvis, why am I you know, buying into your, uh, your beliefs? You know, I'm trying to think of what is a, even a grander commonality. Is there, is there some, something we can say that would... Yeah. So, what, so what, what commonality could there be? It's almost like reaching, you're, you're attempting to reach uh, beyond the particular traditions uh, or, or ways of seeing the world. Yeah. Just have a sense of, of is there right. a way of fundamentally judging between these beliefs or judging or, or bringing them together around a common yeah. root human reality? Yeah. And I think, I guess this may go back, this is like a, this is, whether this comes from Jesus or leads me to Jesus, I don't know. It's, it could be a chicken or an egg situation. Right. And I'm unsure about this as we talk. But I do have a, have, a, have a very strong belief, and where is this coming from? I don't know, that, that human beings are instinctively, we instinctively seek relationship and love and a desire to be truthful and 
authentically present to one another. Yeah, right. And if that El- makes sense. And if Elvis is helping him mm-hmm. to do that, there we are. I would say it's God in his life working through his imaginary belief in Elvis, um, because that's my belief, the way to, I choose to see things that way. So there's going to be a separation, but there can be a real recognition of that commonality. I, so there's something about humans yeah. that we seek truth, yeah. that there's love in us, that yep. the vast majority of us try not to do harm to others. There's something there. There's something really substantial there. Uh, I think the bit about truth is a desire to be seen for what I really am and loved and accepted. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, like perhaps the most profound craving that we all have is to be seen clearly and accepted and loved, and then to be able to love others in the same way. So if there's this deep commonality that we were talking about, sure. that you have, and that even the person who believes in Elvis is a literal God, um, has that as well, and you have that, if we all have that and we can agree upon that, then why do we need the other stuff? Why do we need a lens? If we can all agree on it. If we can all agree on that. I would think that the, the lens can elicit to greater or lesser degree of precision or clarity that truth. So for instance, I find, because of my faith, my choice and my faith in Jesus, the elicitation or the revelation of this idea of, of, of love and honesty being together. Um, and so the traditions provide us a communal network and wealth of resources for exploring these this fundamental human truth for ourselves. So that's why they're valuable, uh, because they provide a way into it and a way of they mediate our own reality to us. I guess where my uh, confusion stems from is that we just agreed on a way that you and the gentleman sitting next to you agree on things without a lens. That this is something that it seems to be fundamentally true to all humans. And now we are providing lenses. And I'm, I'm trying to understand Mm. if the purpose is for all of us to get along and try to see things the same way and believe in things that are true, why do we need to step back at that point? You know, and I hope, hmm, fascinating. Because could we just, could we say, you and I in this room decide uh, we are going to start this Sunday morning service of Mark and Bob. And uh, 
We'd be sitting in the same room. In the same room. Be, and be believing the same thing. And, and, have, and have some kind of affirmation around uh, honesty and truth mm-hmm. and affirmation around care and compassion mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and authenticity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I would expect we'd begin to struggle with inauthenticity and struggle with dishonesty and struggle with the lack of love. And we'd begin to write about it and we'd begin to talk about ways of growing in authenticity and love. And we'd begin to make our own tradition and our own lens all over again. Would we do that if we fundamentally believe on the things that we just discussed that most people believe in, what it is to be human? And if we agree on that, would there need to be traditions if that is what is agreed upon? Would there need to be traditions if we agreed on a fundamental way human beings are? Which is a great question, because I think we all have experience with traditions that distort that fundamental truth, right? And lead us away from it, say, into acts of violence in the name of God. So, so traditions can be highly problematic. Part of my motivation for doing this show is that I explained earlier There's the premise that we have things that we believe that seem to contradict with things that other people believe, and that can get us into trouble. And maybe if we can drill down and get to what it is that we agree on truly, and then stop there, and we just agree here, and then communicate here at the at the base of of where the beliefs come from, right? All right. So I am on board with this program. Okay. And in fact, this is what I do when I participate in a social justice action, and I am engaging with people of all different kinds of beliefs. But we've agreed fundamentally that our desire to be compassionate is enacted in this social action. Right. Right. Um, we drill down to that commonality and we stay there. Uh, But why why do we leave there? What if if we stay there and use the tradition to have a richer access to it? And I guess that's the question. Can, Can a tradition, like a religious tradition, mediate that fundamental truth to us in a way that is perhaps more productive or more effective than just going at it in the abstract. I'm not quite following you. Right. So the question is, because you're saying, why do we go from this, we drill down to this fundamental thing about being human, which we all can agree to and is, and is fantastic and is solid. Why would we need to add religion onto that or add a tradition onto it or add something more onto it? And the question I think that that asks is, and which asks me in this moment, is does my Christian faith allow me to have a better access to that and to live with and to grow into that fundamental human truth 
than I would have without it. So, so does my reading of scripture, my gathering with community, my talking with, uh, people and seminars, does my, my worship and all of that, does that actually strengthen my engagement with that fundamental human truth that we've agreed on? We've drilled down to, or does it, does it take away from it? Does it lead me away from it? Or does it just add something that's extra and unnecessary that causes conflict in the world because we don't agree on the same thing? If my Christian faith makes it more difficult for me to drill down and see the commonality that I have with all human beings, then it has failed. And then I should leave it. But if, if it allows me to enter into a greater commonality and a greater belonging to all human beings, regardless of their belief, then it's a success. But let's not, uh, let's not get rid of the, the resources of language and culture that help us to access it, which we might call the religious tradition. Do we need that to access it? I think so. Why? Why do we need that to access it? Um, again, it goes back to the idea that we all have an interpretive lens. Uh, it's better to know what lens you're seeing the world through than not. Um, so we're always going to have an interpretive lens. There's no, there's no God's point of view for any of us. It's fascinating because in some one, one sense, one could just say, we've got it. This is what it's about. And let's see what causes the flourishing of this kind of human being who is compassionate, transparent, authentic, um, and let's just go with that and see what works. If I had a nephew who was engaged in some kind of cult, it yeah. made it harder for him to be in touch with himself and others, less loving, less authentic, then that way of seeing the world becomes very problematic to me, for instance. Sure. Right? But, if they, but what if they were in a cult that did practice that? That might be Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes. I wish we practiced it. Yeah. I see. I see. From the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsboro, North Carolina, I'm Mark Solomon, and you've just listened to another episode of Being Reasonable. Questions? Thoughts? Connect with us at beingreasonableshow.com. See you next week.
Four point seven 